0: Days like yesterday also remind us, perhaps, of our nation's safety. Right, 19th anniversary of 9/11. Um, strange thing to say that some crises are better than others in the way they bring a people together. You know, it seems like a distant memory now, but after that terrible event, Americans of all stripes and and uh, commitments and political views came together. Um, and did some amazing things, not all good, some good, some bad, but, but there was a focus and an energy, and it seems like we're missing. These days we have crises, but they're dividing us and separating us, and is, is that necessary? I was heartened to see in the news yesterday that um, uh, Joe Biden and Vice President Mike Pence were both at the same ceremony there in 9-11, and they gave each other an elbow bump which is maybe a slight hope that is it possible for our icy political relations in this country to thaw? I I don't know, but hope springs eternal. And certainly within the church that hope should spring eternal, that we can have a thaw of relationships. In fact, I would say that we are promised it, that we are promised it based on the Scripture text from this morning uh... that christ will present to himself a holy church perfect and undefiled and that is going to involve relationships between peoples i came to this understanding uh, pastor dwight also alluded to my time down at uh, notre dame studying american religious and legal history and i had an experience there that gave me a greater insight into the role that our Adventist prophetic heritage and message has played and could play in social conflicts of the day. And it went like this I was uh, working as a graduate assistant for a Protestant American historian uh, of religion, Mark Knoll, uh, and he was teaching a course on American religious history, and he invited me to give some lectures in the classroom on the history of the Adventist church. He wanted me to talk about the Millerites and the Great Disappointment and, and, and the early development of the Seventh-day Adventist church and, and, and some to the modern day. So, okay, this is fine. I know something about Adventism and its history, and so I began putting my lecture together. But I shortly ran into a kind of conundrum. Here I was. I'd I'd certainly presented on Adventism and the sanctuary before, but it was usually in different contexts to groups of Adventists or maybe at evangelistic meetings. But here I was going to be facing a, not a hostile audience, but a somewhat indifferent audience largely of Catholic young people who knew nothing about this and didn't particularly have an interest in it. And we're going to be somewhat skeptical from the outset And as I rehearsed uh, the story about the 1844 and the disappointment but how early Adventist pioneers came to understand that, oh, there was something actually happening in the heavenly sanctuary. And so the date was right, but the event wasn't quite right. It seemed a little bit, I don't know, maybe flimsy. Um, The Jehovah's Witnesses also say a similar thing about Christ coming in 2000, uh, yeah, um, not 2000, 1917. And um, so I thought, how am I? I don't have enough time to go into a big, long exegetical examination of Daniel eight and nine, and and uh, how am I going to present this in a way that they find it at least a little bit plausible? And so I did some thinking about both my this, the American history that I was studying at the time, and some points that our pioneers had made about the cleansing of the sanctuary not just being a heavenly manifestation or concept. And the two things that I put together were this. It came as some surprise in my studies to learn that in 1844, along with the Great Disappointment, we also had a historic event in America in the two largest Christian churches in America, the Baptists and the Methodists, they represented 70% of all American Christians, they, uh, those churches split north and south over the issue of slavery. And um, as I examined our pioneers teaching on the cleansing of the sanctuary, it became apparent that it wasn't just a heavenly event. For them, it, it was a heavenly event, but it also had uh, mirror, uh, uh, parallel events happening on the earth. And there's a, a, a quote I'll share with you here from Great Controversy uh, where you all should be familiar with it, but just to remind you, if we can put that on the screen, Ellen White said this. Um, While the investigative judgment, you know, beginning in 1844, is going forward in heaven, while the sins of penitent believers are being removed from the sanctuary, there is to be a special work of purification, of putting away of sin among God's people upon the earth. Now, this concept may be familiar with some of you about uh, as the sanctuary in heaven is cleansed, so the soul temple here on earth, there should be a special putting away of sin. But I don't think we've always seen it in its um, corporate sense, right? It's not just about the individual believer. Rather, something is being said about the church. And in fact, the next part of the quote from the Great Controversy points this out. Then the church, which our Lord at his coming is to receive to himself, will be a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So there she's focusing not so much on individual believers and whether they're, you know, following all the the health requirements of the, and more on the social aspect of the church, right? How people are relating to each other in the church. And so it becomes an interesting argument which both Ellen White and Abraham Lincoln believed uh... that the civil war was a punishment and cleansing on america and christian america for the sin of slavery and it was this sin that began to be removed from american christianity beginning in a somewhat decisive way in eighteen forty four and in fact american religious historians point to that event and say it was at that moment where it became almost inevitable that the civil war could happen would happen because if the greatest moral influences on america the christ american christian church couldn't resolve that question it would have to be resolved through force of arms so this event that happens in heaven is being reflected in a church beginning to be purified on this earth and this is part of what i told the students down at notre dame and, and Rather than kind of looks of skepticism and implausibility from them, I, there was some nodding, oh, this makes sense. There was an evil that America needed to be cleansed of, and, and, and there we are. So it was a story that was at least coherent, not just something removed from our earth. So there was... Um, it's caused me to look more closely at some of the things our pioneers said in relation to slavery Uh, and our prophetic message. Indeed, Ellen White did say that the work of purification would include views about racism and slavery. There's a quote here I'll share with you from uh, First Testimonies. The first part of it reads like this, There are a few in the ranks of Sabbath keepers who sympathize with the slaveholder. When they embraced the truth, they did not leave behind them all the errors they should have left. They need, the next slide, a more thorough draft from the cleansing fountain of truth. Some have brought along with them their old political prejudices, which are not in harmony with the principles of truth. We often say we're supposed to keep church and state separate, politics and religion separate. But this quote would suggest that you need to allow your religion to cleanse and purify and make right your politics at least if some of your political views involve not treating other people as fully in the image of god and that the cleansing that took place in the heavenly sanctuary needed to be reflected by a cleansing here uh... even of church members views of slavery and race this insight hasn't just uh, been mine alone over the last decade but a number of Adventist historians michael campbell at southwestern Kevin Burton at Southern is completing a dissertation where he's showing that Adventism significantly overlapped with the abolitionist movement. They shared offices, they shared printers, at times they even shared meeting halls, advertising lectures by abolitionists and second coming preachers at the same time as part of the same program. Their prophetic outlook was wrapped up in seen often through the prism of social ills and of slavery. Think about the three angels' messages for a moment. The first angel's message to every nation, kindred, tongue, and tribe and people identified the fact that Adventism should be shared equally with all people who are in the image of God. And they viewed the judgment hour as falling especially heavy on the United States because of the sin of slavery. The call to come out of Babylon, I'd always associated it with a call, of course, to to leave the Sunday keeping churches and to keep the Sabbath. And it wasn't until I went to Notre Dame and read more widely in church history that I realized there were actually others proclaiming the second angel's message coming out of Babylon, but they applied it to coming out of churches that supported slavery. So there was a parallel movement of coming out of Babylon. And the Adventists also embraced this coming out because of slavery. In our retelling of it, we tended to overlook and drop the slavery part and focus on the Sabbath part. And you can see how the two are very closely related. Sabbath, creation, image of God, and treating all people equally. Finally, the third angel's message, the mark is given by a beast whose speaking as a dragon was seen in its support of slavery and racism. The lamb-like beast with a two horn that speaks as a dragon. When I was raised, I was told, yes, freedom and equality, religious rights, civil liberties, and some point in the future, America will undermine these and speak as a dragon. But our pioneers didn't believe that they actually believed america was doing both those things at the same time if you go back and you read the review from the eighteen fifties you will find articles and editorials and even a three or four page poem by uriah smith talking about the lamb like beast speaking as a dragon then in the form of slavery and racism now let me ask you this was the issue of slavery a politically divisive issue probably the most politically divisive issue in the history of our country Congress was constantly divided about it we think we're in a cultural civil war well back then they were on the verge of and eventually ended up having a real civil war over this issue but our pioneers didn't let the fact that slavery involved politics deter them from speaking to the moral questions of slavery and the need to support the image of God in all peoples. Why did they do this? Why were they willing to speak up despite the controversy? Wouldn't it jeopardize the preaching of the gospel, our prophetic message? Well, they didn't seem to think so. Um, They, Ellen White, put forward fairly clearly in uh, a statement why this should be a concern that slave owners maintain that the slave is the property of the master, and it should not be taken from him. I was shown that it mattered not how much the master had paid for the human flesh and the souls of men. What mattered? Money didn't matter. Slaves mattered. You might even say, looking at the next slide... She said this, God gives him no title to human souls and he has no right to hold them as his property. Christ died for the whole human family, whether white or black. Ellen White would fully agree that black lives matter, that white lives matter, that all lives matter. And we live in a day and an age of politics that if I said just one of those statements, somebody would be upset somewhere but it's true that all of them are true but sometimes you have to emphasize those that are currently at risk or facing difficulty ellen white called for we wonder is protest a christian thing is protest something we could should do could do probably the most extreme form of protest most protest is is actually legal right the first amendment to the constitution protects your right to gather and peacefully protest to redress grievances a more extreme form of protest is civil disobedience where you intentionally break laws that you view as unjust ellen white called for this second more extreme form of civil protest she said about the fugitive slave act this law we are not to obey an adventist took her at her word and there were a number of adventist leaders who operated underground stops Uh, stops on the Underground Railroad, uh, including John Byington, our first general conference president. But after slavery was over, surely she moved on to other things, right? No, she knew that the end of an institution and a legal framework didn't end the impact that that created. So in the 1870s and the 1880s, she spoke about the importance of Christians providing restitution to newly freed black slaves in the South. The Lord calls upon you to restore to his people the advantages of which they have so long been denied. Restitution. What does restitution mean? It's a synonym for another word. It's a little more well-known these days. Reparation. If you look on Google, you'll discover that restitution and reparation are effectively having the same meaning. Amazing that our prophet would call for such a controversial idea. She knew that there was and would be continued injustice. The desire... In the slide, to show their masterly authority over the blacks is still burning in the hearts of many who claim to be Christians. When the whites commit crimes, they are often allowed to go uncondemned, while for the same transgressions, the blacks are treated worse than the brutes. Terrible. It's a good thing that doesn't happen in our day. Or does it? I think Ellen White was speaking both in her day and prophetically and we are still wrestling with many of the issues that she herself saw. She also believed that inequality and injustice should be protested. She talked in fact in Minneapolis about the reform that should take place in the churches and in society and she said while we will endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace she didn't want unnecessary controversy, unnecessary division But she did say we will not with pen or voice cease to protest against bigotry. Now a couple of points need to be made here with all the protests and demonstrations happening around the country. Ellen White was not a socialist, a Marxist. She actually spoke. Marx had written uh, before her time. She was uh, familiar with his writings and she said that it was not possible in this world for all people to have equal wealth this was not a legitimate aim or goal but in the same breath she turned around and said those that have more are stewards under God to relieve the sufferings and wants of those who have less notice a steward it's not a matter of charity when you're a steward when you're a steward you own someone else's money that you have an obligation now to share more broadly. She wouldn't support, of course, rioting or looting or arson, but she was part of the grand Christian tradition of nonviolent protest and civil, even civil disobedience. But was it her cre- critique just limited to slavery and Jim Crow? No, she and our other pioneers we're willing to speak out in relation to government policy and action when it inf- infringed on what we call the second horn of the lamb like beast one is religious freedom the other is republicanism civil liberties a representative government this could include things like treating people with fairly with uh, due process protecting their civil rights and in the late 18 18- uh... nineties america went to war against spain in what's called the spanish-american war some of that conflict took place in the philippines um, the adventist press openly criticized calling this american imperialism and colonialism based on their understanding of revelation thirteen they pointed to religious liberty concerns with the war being justified in part by the chance to bring protestant democracy to a catholic colonial system But they also critiqued it on grounds of militarism, false patriotism, buying and selling of millions of people, racism. It was mostly against non-white Filipinos. Um, The Liberty Magazine at the day condemned the war in the Philippines as a race war, particularly a war of Anglo-Saxons against a colored race. Historian, Adventist historian Douglas Morgan has pointed out Adventists in this period were not hesitant to apply their apocalyptic worldview to the foreign policy of their own government and in so doing to hold the government to its own highest standards of human rights. It's not that early Adventists were anti-American. They were pro-American. They believed that the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution laid out the highest values that any government in history had had. But they also saw the second part of the Prophecy speaking as a dragon, and they realized they needed to continually call America to live up to those values. They weren't being unpatriotic, they were being the most patriotic in bringing a prophetic critique to bear against these things. But all that's ancient history, right? I mean, we left the slavery, we left the imperialism and the colonialism behind in the early 20th century. We went to Europe, we won World War II, saved Europe and freedom, came home, educated all the soldiers in the GI Bill, creating a new American middle class which soon embraced the civil rights movement and race discrimination was no longer legal and we had affirmative action and a black president. So let's move on to more important prophetic things like Sunday laws and apostate Christianity. Maybe not so fast... As I studied American history, my eyes were open to a number of things. Yes, we won World War II, and we won it with lots of black soldiers, a very integrated military who served alongside their white comrades. When they came, soldiers came back. Nearly 8 million American soldiers took advantage of the GI Bill to get a college education this was probably the greatest expansion of the middle class in american history right a tremendous uh... resource put into of uh, the working class of america and about four million get home loans the catch is, almost none of those were actually black veterans because at the time almost all the banks wouldn't give loans to blacks and the universities and colleges of the country would not admit most of them black students so despite it being the greatest expansion of the middle class in our country's history it actually created a greater divide and gap between the black and the white communities it's a gap that continues even though this legal discrimination doesn't continue it's um, created an effect that's continued to this day uh, banks continued to redline black communities into the 70s and 80s, um, refusing loans based on where you lived. And the results of this are still with us today. As of the last two or three years ago, the average white American household has a wealth of $170,000. The average black household, $17,000, one tenth. The gap has not changed for 60 years. Right, And that includes when there was legal discrimination. This gap is the same, and it appears to be widening. The wealth base determines in good part your access to education, health care, and job opportunities. Deaths during our COVID pandemic, some of you have probably seen the news, much higher in minority communities. Why is that? Directly these figures. Access to health care, good education, and jobs, right? A lot of the essential worker jobs, blue-collar, frontline jobs, are disproportionately taken by minorities. But what do these social issues of wealth and poverty have to do with prophecy? You know, we've got rid of the formal system of discrimination. Surely we can just move on and 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 uh, work in a free economy where everyone has equal opportunity. Oh, if that were the case. I think earlier I said that Ellen White wasn't a socialist, but neither was she an untrammeled capitalist. And if you read her writings, she drew principles from the Scripture, Old Testament especially, read Patriarchs and Prophets, the treatment of the poor. But she was also familiar with the fourth angel's message. Fourth angel, where's the fourth angel found? Revelation 18. The fourth angel comes down, adding its call to the first three. And in that chapter is one of the most remarkable critiques, and I've really never heard it preached on before, of Western imperialistic commercial activity that would describe the West for the last three or four hundred years. There is a list, Revelation 18, 10 to 13. The merchants of the earth, as Babylon falls, will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood. And it goes down a list of all these items that are sold nationally and internationally. But then it ends with the point that this list is leading to and is trying to make. Wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men, right? All of Western civilization was caught up in the trade of slavery during the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. In good part, we built our wealth and our capital enterprises on stolen labor. Yes, it ended in 1865 in most countries and a decade or two later in others, but there was a tremendous uh, um, capital built up by one group at the expense of another group and what we're having to find here is what some people would call an exploitive capitalism right the Bible is not against buying and selling and and uh, doing the best you can but it is against it when things take precedence over people and that happened in a formal way for three or four hundred years in the West And how non-historical and foolish of us to think that all that can be done away with, washed away with, with a few decades of facial legal equality. But we're far removed from that on this campus, surely. You know that we have monuments to this kind of exploitive capitalism and slavery on our own campus. There's been a bit of a controversy lately about Confederate war memorials and what they mean and whether they could be kept or not or moved or not and in the midst of this there was an extraordinary um, editorial in the New York Times by a Carolyn Randall Williams you want a Confederate monument my body is a Confederate monument and she describes the fact that she's a black woman considered a black woman but she actually and has black parents grandparents and great-grandparents but is actually more white than black. How did this happen? She explains in the slide It is an extraordinary truth of my life that I am biologically more than half white, and yet I have no white people in my genealogy and living memory. No voluntary whiteness. I am more than half white, and none of it was consensual. White Southern men, my ancestors, took what they wanted from women they did not love over whom they had extraordinary power and then failed to claim their children. She's being kind. They didn't just fail to claim their children, rather they at times bred them to widen their slavery pool and most of those children were treated as slaves. What is a monument but a standing memory, an artifact to make tangible the truth of the past? My body and blood are a tangible truth of the South and its past. And I ask you now, who dares to tell me to celebrate them? Who dares to ask me to accept their mounted pedestals? If we view those memorials as celebrating this system that this woman and her ancestors experienced, perhaps we'd have a little more empathy about their hurt and their concerns from it. This story was made personal for me and should be to all of you because while I don't know Carolyn Williams her cousin is a faculty member on the faculty here at Andrews University and shares this same heritage and thus we have here at Andrews a Confederate memorial. Now some may wonder the history is past, and the history is dead three or four generations ago bad things happened but not so fast you know what the one drop rule is if you had one drop of black blood then you were treated under the laws of discrimination uh... first slavery and then jim crow and then the redlining and the discrimination laws of the fifties and sixties andrews didn't escape from this black students outside the union were limited in their attendance here we segregated our cafeteria made the blacks eat together that ended in the fifties perhaps but even in the seventies uh... doctor walter douglas can tell a story the first black seminary faculty member in my department uh... was the chair of it but when he came couldn't have difficulty buying a house sent a white friend in to look at houses for him found a house he liked went to the bank to close when the seller saw that it was a black man he tried to back out of the arrangement and the bank told him no you can't do that the bank wanted to realize that there were laws against discrimination the punchline to the story is that white seller was an adventist elder in a local church here we still have things to learn that was in the 70s what about now Well, just a few years ago, when I was on campus, I was at a race discussion over at the Towers uh, Complex. I was on the panel, and I made the argument that mostly explicit racism was behind us. Of course, there's KKK somewhere and some overt racists, but at a place like Andrews and where we are here, but implicit racism exists. We all suffer from it. It's just a natural part of being human. It's just a question of choosing to act against it. Well, lo and behold, as I left that meeting that night, I walked out and I saw a truck driving slowly in front of that um, uh, building with a light shone on the back of the truck where a Confederate flag was flying. Um, This was clearly someone from somewhere who had heard about this meeting on racism and wanted to send a message to our community here at Andrews. Now I hope it wasn't somebody connected with our community, but it was obviously someone close enough to know that we were having an internal meeting here on the issue of race and racism. Now I want to recognize that Andrews and the Lake Union has made important strides. They've issued apologies uh, for our shortcomings and the wrongs of the past. Uh, We now have a vice president for diversity here, which I think is a very important step. We have scholarships for minority students. And yet, and yet, more remains to be done. It's true that the hour of worship is often the most segregated hour, not just in America, but on our own campus. There is still distrust and disharmony. There are still separations, both in our church formally and informally. You know, America will never overcome racism fully because we live in a sinful world. But if you believe in the scripture reading for today, you believe that the church is called to do that and must do that because, in fact, the church needs to be white and pure and racism is not white and pure. I want to end with a positive story shared some difficult things with you. But to give you a sense that the Christian church has always dealt with this issue, even at the very beginning, in the book of Acts, chapter 6, it's described to us why they chose deacons, right? You all know the story, but this is where we get the deacon, office of deacon. But it was to do with an ethnic conflict over elders, uh, over the uh, Greek widows, who the Greeks claimed were getting less food than the Hebrews. You Remember the story. The the apostles could have been offended, taken aback. We don't treat anyone differently. But no, they took the bigger road and said, we need to appoint some other leaders. And if you look at the names of the deacons that were appointed, all seven of those names are Greek names. And I know this in part because one of them is my namesake, Nicholas, leader of the people, something like that. And so They saw this problem. You might consider it the first act of affirmative action in the church where they said we need to not just be fair, we need to be seen to be fair and we need to rise up above these ethnic jealousies and differences and and take into account the hard and hurt feelings of our brothers and sisters even if we're not sure we did anything wrong. Now the key key passage in this is verse 7 and I want to share that with you on the screen. After this happened, Acts records that then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, yes, the gospel had been growing before. you The Pentecost had happened and, 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 and the church had grown. But this critical moment is when the church really expands and the priests representing the educated and the cultured classes The educated realize how powerful race and culture is. And they saw that if this group of people could overcome those issues, that there must be something divine here. And isn't that what we're facing today? Isn't that what the world is waiting for? Not for another revelation seminar or explanation of Daniel, as good as those things are. They're not going to believe or care about those explanations until they see the gospel actually being lived out in the racial divisions and conflicts in our church. So to set up a difference between prophecy and social justice or treating people fairly is a false separation. People need to see the gospel in our social treatment of others and then they will care about our prophetic message. Bow your heads with me as I close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. I pray and I believe that your spirit has been, been among us. Take us up to heavenly places, even on this earth, as we seek to overcome the divisions that continue in our midst. Bless us now, I pray this in your name. Amen.